2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally published on, uh, not October, what was I going to say? This is August 6th, 2020. This is our episode on PyCrete. This was a good one. I think it generated a lot of listener mail, and it was a, was a, a load of fun. All right, let's jump right in. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're going to be talking about materials today. But this is a really fun materials episode that will shatter like glass in our hands. Or will it? I guess it's a big question mark. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be talking a lot
0: about ice. uh, But a lot of exciting stuff about ice. You're going to learn some new things about ice, I think. And you're also going to think uh, a, a bit more deeply about what can be done and also what perhaps cannot or should not be done with ice. So if you've read any of George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, if you've read that saga, or if you've viewed the TV adaptation uh, Game of Thrones, you're well acquainted with The Wall. But to reacquaint everybody, this is a fantasy world uh, that's based on sort of a medieval European model. And in the far north, you have this massive 300 mile long, 700 foot tall wall of ice that we're told has stood there for 8000 years as a barrier against the peoples
2: and the supernatural horrors of the far north. Yeah, it's basically Hadrian's Wall, except much bigger and made of magic.
0: Yes. Yeah. We're told it was built by Brandon, the builder with the aid of giants and the magical children of the forest. So we're definitely to understand that there is actual magic in its construction. But also there's this idea that Brandon was a master engineer, that he's in the vein of these various engineering cultural heroes that you see in various cultures.
2: But of course, the the real uh, standout feature that makes this wall unique is that it is built out of ice, not out of stone, but out of frozen water. Yes, it is a wall of ice. So,
0: um, you know, ignoring the magic for a second here, it sounds like a great plan, right? I mean, humans have been known to make shelters out of ice. Glaciers and snow have served as natural barriers to travel. So why wouldn't uh, it be ideal uh, to construct this far northern barrier, which is going to be dealing with with far northern uh, climate? Why not build it out of ice? Good question. Is a block of ice not just as good as a stone brick? Yeah, so I, I was looking around about this, and uh, fortunately, there is already a great book out there that dives into this very question. It's titled "Fire, Ice, and Physics: The Science of Game of Thrones" by Rebecca C. Thompson, PhD, a physicist and author of the popular Spectra series of comic books about physics. And I should also note that Sean Carroll wrote the intro. Mm, cool. So she, uh, first of all, this is just a really. Fun book if you um, if, if you're interested in Game of Thrones and science, I encourage you to pick it up. I love books like this. Uh, you know, I have one about Dune. Uh, I, I've been eyeing one about Star Wars, um, but uh, she goes through various aspects of the books and uh, the, the world of Westeros and breaks them about scientifically and does so in a very engaging, humorous, but also um, uh, you know, Westeros loving style. Okay, so so there's there's one section in there where she tackles the Wall. And she points out that ultimately this question, would an ice wall work, It's a lot more complex than you might think. Mm -hmm. So for starters, there's not just one type of ice crystal. There are 17 types of crystalline ice that we know of, plus there are three different types of amorphous ice. And th- theoretically, she says there might be as many as 300 different phases of ice, uh, you know, depending on some of the, the
2: research out there. Right. The different phases of ice having different physical properties is something that's been explored in science fiction for a while, actually. It's in the novel Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut, which invents a fictional phase of ice there is no actual phase of ice that does this but there's a fictional phase of ice called ice nine which acts as a seed crystal and it is a it's a doomsday weapon because if you drop a, a piece of this ice into regular water it will rearrange the structure of the regular water so that it freezes at room temperature basically killing earth Oh, you know, I've, I've never
0: read Cat's Cradle, but I I, I remember now that you mentioned, it, I remember like reading that on a summary or
2: the back of the paperback or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but to clarify again, that's a fictional phase of ice. There is no actual phase of ice that does that, that we know about. Yeah. The, the phase of
0: ice we're most familiar with is ice 1H, also known as ice phase one. And this is the, the hexagonal crystal form of ordinary ice. And this is pretty much all the ice you ever come into contact with and therefore we can assume that this is the same ice that we encounter in the world of westeros i think that's a safe assumption yeah of course you might say well what if it's not what if somehow this is an alternate universe or a different planet where another form of ice is the predominant phase Uh, i'm not sure if that's even a reasonable question to raise though Anyway, Thompson does a great overview of ice and the physical properties of ice. And uh, I, I do want to throw in that she has an excellent bit where she weighs in
2: on whiskey stones. Oh, okay. So, Robert, explain the concept of a whiskey stone, real quick. Uh,
0: well, I do not. I do not own these, but uh, I assume you do not either. But I'd, I've heard of them. I guess I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I know anyone. I think I might know one person who has them. But the idea is that you you're such an aficionado of bourbon or whiskey, and you that you don't want anything to dilute it. You want it cold, uh, but you don't want to put some ice in there, which will chill the drink but also melt. So apparently, these have been marketed before. The whiskey stones are like are rocks that somebody sells you, rocks that you keep in your freezer. And then when you want to have a cold glass of of brown alcohol, you put the cold rock in there. And the rock, of course, will not melt and dilute
2: your beverage. Now, if you actually enjoy Whiskey Stones, uh, no judgment at all, more power to you. But I I would like to point out just real quickly that this is you can get into how it might be a little bit misguided from a physics standpoint, but it's also a little bit misguided, I think, from a culinary standpoint, because I mean, I think most people believe that like whiskeys tend to kind of improve with the addition of a small amount of water. So like melting ice cools, but also adds water to the drink. And this is an important part of many spirit and cocktail preparations. And this might be why if you've ever tried to mix a cocktail that is supposed to be shaken with ice, but then you make it without shaking it with ice, it kind of tastes wrong. That's because one of the ingredients in this cocktail is actually water, and you have left that important ingredient out by not shaking it with ice that dilutes into the drink.
0: Yeah, I've I've definitely experienced this uh, making cocktails before where I'll end up for whatever reason, you know, due to whatever kind of ice I have on hand, uh, I'll end up with a drink that doesn't taste perfect, but once the ice has melted a little bit, it's a different experience. Totally. And even with like a straight uh, whiskey on, on the rocks, I mean, that, that's always been my experience of, of that. It's like it, the, the drink will change as the, uh, the drinking, drinking experience will change as the ice melts, which I, I think is part of the experience. But then again, I'm, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm ultimately a novice when it comes to uh, the appreciation of fine whiskeys. But Thompson also makes a physics point about the uh, whiskey stones, right? Right. She writes the following, quote, The heat from the soda is used to melt the ice so the surrounding soda cools off. This is also why whiskey stones are a total sham. Seriously, I can't stress this enough. Don't buy whiskey stones. If you want to keep your drink cold without watering it down, get yourself some water-filled plastic ice cubes. They're 80% less stylish, but 100% more useful. Now, she continues from here and gets some more detail. Well, basically, her point is that the whiskey stone will only take away enough energy to raise its temperature to the whiskey temperature. An ice cube will take the same energy plus the energy needed to
2: break the molecular bonds, which melts the ice. Right. That phase transition takes energy the same way that boiling water takes energy. Like, why does your pot of water boiling on the stove not just keep increasing in temperature in, until it's the same temperature as like the heating element below it? Uh, it's because it takes enormous energy to turn that water into steam and that energy gets boiled off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that that uh, doesn't directly relate to the the building of a giant wall made out of ice, but it was just too interesting in her writing
2: on it was just too uh, uh, humorous to pass over. Well, let's get back to why exactly it is that ice is not a good building material. All right. Well, she points out that, um,
0: quote, ice on a large scale is basically ketchup. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh, yeah so yeah ice on a large scale is a non-newtonian fluid in an ice wall or a glacier the pressure of the structure's own weight causes it to creep and th- this would occur even in, if low temperatures prevented the ice from ever really melting. Uh, Dislocations, small cracks that cause ice crystals to move over each other, would cause the creep even in a you know a, a pretty stable chilly environment. So this would uh, be in play concerning the wall, along with temperature
2: changes. Yeah, that's right. And creep actually is the technical term there. It comes up in a uh, paper by a chemist that we're going to look at later in the episode. Uh, yeah, she says that ultimately the wall,
0: she says the wall would have probably been okay for like a year, but <laughs> over the course of thousands of years, it would end up being just more of an ice dome or a plateau, depending on the temperature. Uh, so it would be far less of an obstacle to um, certainly intelligent uh, beings looking to invade the South. Well, good thing it's magic then. <laughs> but uh, but there's more. Uh, there, there's another huge issue and one uh, that's key to the rest of the episode here. Ice tends to have a lot of defects in it due to the way the ice crystals are organized, and this leads to cracks. And, of course, cracks mean that the ice can ultimately fail, right? Mm -hmm. It can ultimately um, um, lose its structural integrity. And it's not just that the ice fails. All materials can fail, and we have to understand how they fail and what conditions cause them to fail. But with ice, quote, there's no specific set of conditions that cause ice to fail. Rather, it fails under a wide range of conditions.
2: Yes. Another way of putting this is that ice is structurally unpredictable. Uh, You take two blocks of ice that are the same size, made of the same water, and one might fail trying to hold up five pounds, while another one can hold up 20 pounds. And that kind of difference, that variability, is not a good characteristic of a building material. You could almost argue, I think, that predictability is more important than strength when you're selecting a, a building material. Yes.
0: Now, Thompson does point out that there are ways to strengthen the ice. There are ways to make it more dependable, more durable. And the interesting thing is the weird things that you do to ice uh, to, to do this. Uh, we find fantastic examples of, of this, not in a fantasy world like uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, but instead, we find these examples in the, the equally or perhaps even more bizarre world of our own real history.
2: Right. This brings us to the subject of the rest of today's episode, which is going to be this fantastic frozen material known as pycrete, or ice that's about as strong as concrete.
0: Yes. And, and again, let me just say that if you're familiar with, with this uh, material and uh, its, its usage and, uh, and the project we're going to talk about, then you know you're in for an exciting time. But if you haven't, just let me assure you that everything is about to get far stranger uh, than a giant wall of ice made to keep uh, undead um, uh, invaders
2: out. Right. We're more in the realm of a giant tub of ice used to bomb Nazis. But first, oh, we're going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more
0: ice. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free
2: samples.
1: waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey
3: rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill 2. drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway
0: So we're going to be dealing with the Second World War here, uh, a truly global war that worked kind of like a black hole, just pulling in, I mean, first and foremost, human lives, but also human ingenuity and, of course, funds and resources as well. So there was more than enough room in all of this for the occasional harebrained scheme to pick up a lot of steam. And this is one of them.
2: I, I want to say, I'm not sure exactly how harebrained it is. Like <laughs> in some ways it's harebrained and in other ways it's quite ingenious. It's this strange yeah. mixture of, uh, of genuine insight and good ideas with proposals so outlandish they're laughable on their face.
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I, sh- I should rephrase, I guess, that there are better examples of purely harebrained schemes uh, that were brought up during World War II. This one, I guess it's just more of an idea that this is this is a, a real outside the box idea and one that at least for a while seemed like it might be the best solution to the problem, given uh, the resources at hand
2: and the uh, the weight of the circumstances. Right. So what was the problem that we're going to start with here?
0: Well, the basic problem is the Allied forces needed better aerial coverage of the North Atlantic.
2: Yeah. So to expand on this, uh, I want to refer to a paper that we're going to be consulting extensively for the rest of this episode. It's called A Description of the Iceberg Aircraft Carrier (laughs) and the Bearing of the Mechanical Properties of Frozen Wood Pulp Upon Some Problems of Glacier Flow. This is a report that was presented to a scientific organization called the International Glaciological Society in 1946, and it was written by a guy named Max Perutz. Uh, Now, Max Perutz lived from 1914 until 2002. He was an Austrian-born chemist and molecular biologist, and generally just an extremely accomplished scientist. He won the 1962 Nobel Prize for Chemistry, and this was for his work on the structure of hemoglobin. But Perutz was really just one of the great pioneers of molecular biology. I was listening to an interview between Brian Cox and the molecular biologist Vinki Ramakrishnan, who was talking about Perutz's work explaining the structure of proteins. And Ramakrishnan says that in many ways, modern biology would be unthinkable without Perutz's contributions. He he did some of the most important pioneering work for the kinds of molecular biology that are you know ubiquitous throughout the the biology research and biotech world today. But before all this, Perutz was involved in the British war effort during World War II. And specifically, he was working with the ice-based technology that we are discussing today. And in this paper, he gives a firsthand account of the project and some scientific discoveries that came out of it. So to, to establish the problem, Perutz writes that in the autumn of 1942, Allied leadership recognized that their war effort was really suffering from a lack of air Power range, especially in response to German U boat attacks in the Atlantic. And this was affecting the transport of cargo across the ocean between Great Britain and their allies in North America. So there's a U-boat threat throughout the ocean. You never know if your your cargo resupply ships are going to be attacked, and you could defend them if you had better air coverage. But how are you going to get planes all the way out there in the middle of the Atlantic where the U-boats can attack? That's right. You come down to the limits of aviation
0: technology at that time.
2: Yeah, and Perutz writes, quote, "...it had been a common experience that the carrier-based aircraft of the Allies were inferior in armament and speed to the land-based planes of the enemy." And so what he's talking about was that there were aircraft carriers that the Allies had during World War II, but these aircraft carriers at the time were relatively small with short runways and limited parking and storage space. So the kinds of planes that could take off from them tended to have light armor and wings that would like collapse and fold up to make them easier to store. The kinds of planes that were better armored, more powerful, and could do more damage—for example, uh, I was reading an article by— Paul Collins from 2002 uh, in the magazine Cabinet about uh, this project. And Collins mentioned Spitfires and bomber planes as examples of these more powerful planes. Uh, They couldn't fit on or take off from aircraft carriers. They had to be launched from the ground. And this didn't only affect cargo transport and other operations in the Atlantic. It also had implications for future ground invasions of Axis-occupied areas in, say, continental Europe and in Asia. So you know, given the existing limitations on aircraft carriers, if you were to try to land on a distant shore – Your air power inland would be limited until you could capture or establish airfields there from which you could launch these more powerful land-based planes like Spitfires and bombers. Uh, And so Perutz writes, quote, It was only natural, therefore, that a proposal for the apparently cheap construction of gigantic aircraft carriers capable of operating land-based aircraft thousands of miles from their base was seriously considered. So, so that's the dilemma they're in. They're trying to get more powerful, bigger planes farther out into the ocean, farther from home. Right. And that, that's a pretty tall order right
0: there. But then on top of that, now not only does it have to be enormous and also uh, inexpensive, it, it also would really help if it were essentially torpedo
2: proof, if all these prowling U-boats would be incapable of sinking it. Right. Yeah. You don't want to load a ship up with all of your most important, most expensive aircraft and then launch it out into the ocean to be sunk by a U-boat.
0: Yeah. So, you know, in defense of, of everything that comes after this, that is a that's a
2: tall order that really invites outside the box thinking. Right. And fortunately, we had an outside-the-box thinker come onto the scene. Yes. uh, Inter-English
0: journalist uh, turned inventor, uh, Jeffrey Pike, who lived 1893
2: through 1948. Yeah. And so Paul Collins, writing for that Cabinet Magazine article I mentioned from 2002, he quotes the Times of London, calling Pike, quote, one of the most original if unrecognized figures of the present century. And I just want to read Collins' brief summary of Pike's early life. His career began in 1914 when, as a teenager at Cambridge University, he landed a foreign correspondent job by using a false passport to sneak into wartime Germany. After getting tossed into a concentration camp, he fled the country in a daring daytime escape. In the 1920s, he virtually created progressive elementary education in Great Britain, all for the sake of his own son's education. Pike financed his own school by brilliantly writing futures markets, And controlling a quarter of the world's supply of (laughs) tin, a ploy which brought him to financial ruin in 1929. He lived on as an eccentric hermit, publishing prescient warnings of Nazism and proposing one of the first media watchdogs. After the war, his freelance genius helped propel the creation of the National Health Service. That's quite a resume. So, yeah, foreign journalist, escaped enemy capture, uh, weird investment portfolio, huge into 10, loses it all, eccentric hermit, but then pioneers uh, uh, progressive uh, political causes. And Pike was known for having some extremely weird, you could say, outside the box ideas. One that I was just briefly reading about was that in 1943, as a proposal for, for the war effort, Jeffrey Pike got pipe fever and he started thinking, we need more pipes. We can transport <laughs> things and people through pipes. And that's way more efficient than trying to transport them just straightforwardly over land and vehicles and all that. So he, he proposed the idea of transporting goods and soldiers like from – ship at shore to deep inside enemy territory through pipes. Uh, and obviously this would have some drawbacks, especially when you're trying to ship people through pipes, but in order to combat claustrophobia and suffocation, the troops that were sent through the pipe could be supplied with barbiturates and, uh, oxygen tanks. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, that's quite a,
0: quite an alternate reality to try and envision one in which you would have basically like hot
2: and cold running, um, Armed reinforcements, right? Yeah. Uh, So during World War II, the British military established an office known as Combined Operations, and this was to coordinate actions that required the cooperation of multiple branches of the armed forces. So if you needed to combine naval and air forces or army, etc. And in 1942, the chief of Combined Operations was this guy named Lord Louis Mountbatten. Uh, uh, Lord Mountbatten. There's a big figure in, in 20th century British history. He's sort of all over the place. Uh, but Collins writes that uh, Pike presented himself to Mountbatten's Office of Combined Operations. And he basically told him, hey, you need to hire me, quote, because I'm a man who thinks. And so Pike was thinking. And he came up with an idea, a, a response to this problem of limited air power range in the Atlantic and elsewhere.
0: That's right. In October of 1942, Pike said, hey, why don't we get an iceberg, hollow it out and use that as a floating base? Because this would it would float. It would um, it would be torpedo proof and it would it would certainly last long enough for us to then establish better
2: land bases. Right. So the idea was that a platform capable of launching bigger, heavier planes like bombers and Spitfires could be made out of ice. And and there were two approaches to this, actually. So one is. The naturalistic approach where you just take an existing iceberg and you kind of plane it down and flatten the surface and create a runway. The other would be to create from scratch a giant barge made of ice. But in general, Pike saw a lot of potential for ice-based technology since he claimed that manufacturing ice, even if you're going to make it yourself, needed only 1% of the energy required to create the same amount of steel.
0: Right, which, uh, which uh, I mean, that's playing into the energy demands, but also just in general, you have a global war going on. Your, you know, resources like like steel and even wood, like those are pretty much all already being contested. You know, like those are needed by to to build airplanes, to to build traditional ships, uh, munitions, etc. So, if you have a solution that requires less energy and none of the steel that it needs to be used by all these other parts of the war, uh, then you have a potential, uh, um, potentially amazing solution on your hands.
2: Yeah, it would be hugely advantageous if you could make something like this work. And as you already mentioned, ice naturally floats. It just automatically floats in water. And this is because it's less dense than liquid water. I think about 9% less dense. Also, ice is fairly resistant to explosives. They'd observed this just through the fact that icebergs that already existed were surprisingly resilient against shelling by ships.
0: Yeah, I saw that uh, tidbit brought up as well. And I didn't I didn't have time to explore further. But of course, that just illustrates that warships are firing or at least were firing at icebergs just for fun or for sure. maybe for target target <laughs> practice.
2: I do. Well, yeah. I wonder what the reason was. Why were they just trying it out? Yeah. Maybe the iceberg was in the form of a lewd gesture. They got kind of offended <laughs>
0: Maybe so. Uh, and, and by the way, about the, the idea of it being resistant to explosives, I believe we're going to come back around to some uh, more specific stats on yes. that later.
2: Ice was believed to be relatively resistant to explosives at the time, but it turns out I think that it's um, it's more variable than that. Uh, One quick thing about ice
0: floating, uh, Thompson briefly mentions this, like this being a a key attribute of ice, uh, because imagine what would the shape of life on Earth if ice was heavier than liquid water, if, if ice formed at the bottom of the sea. Uh, That would make that would just be a a disastrous blow to um, uh, to life as we know it. Like imagine uh, how organisms would would function or would fail to function in such an environment.
2: Well, yeah, I've read about this before also, that the fact that ice floats on water and means that ice forms over the top of, say, bodies of fresh water that freeze in the in the winter or even, you know, I guess over at the polar ice caps that protects the water below from continuous freezing and exposure to the elements above. So the yeah. fact that, that it floats allows life to continue in water in very cold places.
0: And also, it means you
2: might be able to make a giant um, aircraft carrier out of it. Right, exactly. So, uh, so this is something uh, from Collins here. Uh, Pike's dream became this hypothetical ice-based ship that would be known as the HMS Habakkuk. So I just want to read from Collins a little bit on the size here. It would be constructed from, quote, 40-foot blocks of ice. His Habakkuk would be 2,000 feet long, 300 feet wide, with walls 40 feet thick. Its interior would easily accommodate 200 Spitfires. The largest ship then afloat was the HMS Queen Mary, which weighed in at 86,000 tons. The Habakkuk would weigh 2 million tons. Wow. That's a big boat. And uh, and strangely enough, it looks like leadership kind of went for it. Now, there, there would be some obvious problems with a boat that size. Uh, I mean, we can get into more of them as we go on. One of them that was mentioned in Collins's article was that, of course, you'd have a problem with a boat like this, uh, you know, Getting advantage, sneaking up on anything, it would probably be kind of slow moving, <laughs> hard to steer, <laughs> all of that stuff. Uh, but in response to that idea, apparently Pike said, quote, surprise can be obtained from permanence as well as suddenness. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. not sure I fully get that, but okay. I'm like halfway there.
0: So anyway, this idea definitely made it up the chain. Winston Churchill uh, thought it sounded promising. And according to uh, Perutz uh, in that 46 paper that we uh, referenced uh, earlier, Churchill thought that while it should be a high priority, he also thought that they should quote, let nature do the work. (laughs) Uh, So in other words, uh, let's maybe not build something out of ice. Let's see what we can do. Uh, we can do making uh, taking advantage of what's already there. And in this, uh, this sounds like a um, like classic boss thinking. Oh, like, totally. this is a great idea. But let's let's go towards the cheap version of the idea. I like that you brought me the expensive version, too. But I really like that cheap version.
2: It, yeah, exactly. Let nature do the work. And I've got a great story about Churchill coming up in a minute. Uh, but just to expand on on Pike's thinking, this is uh, this is a great section from Collins. In battle, the ice ships could put their onboard refrigeration systems to good use by spraying supercooled water at enemy ships, icing their hatches shut, clogging their guns, and freezing halfless sailors (laughs) to death.
0: Oh man! And this Pike essentially sounds like Mister Freeze from the '60s Batman TV show.
2: Is it more from the '60s Batman or from Batman the animated series? Mm,
0: I would say it sounds. It, it's either the Arnold Schwarzenegger Mister Freeze or the, the the TV show Mister Freeze. I feel like animated Mister um, Freeze was like uh, was the ideal balance. Like that. That's my Mister Freeze. That's a good Mister uh, Freeze. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that was solid. Whereas. If you're doing if you're talking about something
2: ridiculous, you got to go 60s or you got to go Arnold. So Pike presents his idea for a two million ton aircraft carrier made out of ice and and Churchill is like. I try. <laughs> you know the, the one
0: of the just crazy things about this uh, is first of all this is not something that just came out like clearly this is, this idea has been public knowledge since uh, uh you know at least since since uh, you know the 1940s right mm-hmm. uh, since 46 uh, when that paper came out and yet I feel like any like weird alternate history book or you know that uh, say if it's uh, like a uh, you know the, the the Golden Compass or uh, something by Alan Moore, for instance. If someone had said, "Ooh, I really like this uh, alternate version of reality you got going here," but why don't you throw in a giant aircraft carrier made out of ice that also shoots freezing water at other ships? Put that in there. They would say, "No, that's just too far. That's just too silly." I'm I'm not I'm not trying to create a farce here.
2: That's going to be in some Kevin Costner movie of the future. It's like in the <laughs> you know, water world and the Postman tradition.
0: Yeah. Or I guess I feel like I, there There has, first of all, there has to be some sci-fi or fantasy out there that has really latched onto this idea, but I almost feel like it's such a weird idea, it's got to be the idea you lead with, you know? Like yeah, everything yeah. has to be built around the ice ships of... Uh, you know, Thebus or
2: whatever the, uh, your world happens to be. Yeah. And so, uh, unfortunately, uh, this idea as, as amazing as it is ran into some problems in the real world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately the berg ship never came to be, uh, because for, for a few different reasons, one of the big ones though, was that icebergs didn't rise high enough above the waterline and, and ice flows were too thin because that was another idea, right? You go get some mm-hmm. ice flows, cut yourself out, is, you know, the, the the amount that you needed and use that as the basis for your ship. Right. Tow them down from the Arctic. Yeah. And then also further research into, um, you know, the, the matters concerning the feasibility of constructing an ice-based carrier uh, turned up some of the challenges, the material challenges we've discussed already.
2: Yeah. To go into a little more detail on that. So you mentioned the fact that natural ice just tends to not... Come out of the water high enough when it's floating in the water. Mm-hmm. Perutz talks about how the Fleet Air Arm had figured out that in order to have a working aircraft carrier that planes could actually land on and take off from, you gotta you gotta have a freeboard. What's called a freeboard of at least fifteen meters or about fifty feet above the water, and the freeboard is just the height of a ship's deck above the waterline. Yeah, if you've ever
0: seen a real aircraft carrier, you'll notice it, it rides pretty high.
2: And this is what you're talking about with ice flows being too thin. Like, the natural ice flows are just not tall enough. They're not going to do the job. right. So engineers were given the job of, well, okay, we got to construct a man-made aircraft carrier platform of ice. But there was a sort of dearth of knowledge about exactly what you could do with ice as a building material. Uh, Pre-existing research on the structural properties of ice was sort of all over the place with its findings. So experiments were carried out in Britain and in Canada to try to sort these claims out. They did a bunch of mechanical strength test results. And actually, we learned a lot about ice. But part of what they learned is that the way ice responds is, in fact, highly variable and unpredictable. Like the way it responds to explosives is kind of unpredictable. Sometimes it's kind of resilient. Sometimes it gets obliterated.
0: Right. And you just you can't just latch on to the results that you like. Right. uh, Not when you're especially not when you're going to try and carry out a project like
2: this. Right. And so there was another thing they were testing for, which was the modulus of rupture for ice. Uh, This is also known as flexural strength or bend strength. Uh, Imagine a very simple test. You have like two supports and you put a slab of a material on those two supports and then you put a weight pressing down in the middle between the two supports and for any given material, you see how much weight a slab of it can sustain of pressure. And Perutz writes that, quote, the average modulus of rupture of ice beams in bending, for instance, was found to be about 22.5 kilograms per square centimeter, but individual beams sometimes failed at stresses as low as 4.9 kilograms per square centimeter. And this is not good. Uh, Perutz points out that just regular old pine lumber has a modulus of rupture somewhere around 800 kilograms. So, Way better in general. And again, the ice is somewhat variable. You might get a weak beam of ice here or there and you wouldn't even know it until you press on it.
0: Right. If you if you're going to if you're going to build something out of this, if you're going to design something built out of this, uh, this material, you need to know how far you can push it. And it needs
2: to be at at least, uh, you know, a dependable range and not just a roll of the dice. Exactly. So ice is just really not sound as a large load bearing building material. And so this leaves us around February of 1943 with ice looking like a bad candidate to build an aircraft carrier out of. That's right. Things looked pretty bleak, at least until they read the work of Herman Mark and Walter P. Hohenstein. Yeah. And these guys were uh, working out of Brooklyn Polytechnic.
0: Yeah. And they'd been experimenting with frozen water with wood pulp inside it. And they found that this, the resulting material, like essentially
2: the mixture of frozen water and wood pulp, was stronger than ice. Significantly stronger. Apparently, Herman Mark had formerly been Perutz's teacher at some point, And I found an account of uh, the discovery written by Perutz and quoted in a piece for Chemistry World by Kit Chapman. Uh, So these are Perutz's words, quote, Pike handed me a report that he said he had found hard to understand. It was by Herman Mark, my former professor of physical chemistry. As an expert on plastics, he knew that many of them were brittle when pure, but could be toughened by embedding fibers such as cellulose in them, just as concrete can be reinforced with steel wires. Mark and his assistant stirred a little cotton wool or wood pulp, the raw material of newsprint, into water before they froze it, and found that these additions strengthened the ice dramatically. And I love this comparison to actual building practices such as embedding rebar or steel wires within concrete when you're making a building. The, the fibers or wires running longitudinally through the material help prevent rupture. But so this stuff, this mixture of frozen water and wood pulp, would come to be known as picrete in honor of Jeffrey Pike, a.k.a. Pike's Concrete and there's an anecdote about the discovery of this material and trying to sell it up the chain that uh, Collins reports and he gets it from the book Pike the Unknown Genius published by uh, Evans Brothers in London in 1959's biography of Jeffrey Pike written by David Lampy. and the story goes like this so one day Prime Minister Winston Churchill gets a visit from Lord Mountbatten while, uh, while Churchill is at the Prime Minister's country house known as Checkers and reportedly when Mountbatten arrived, Arrived at the house, the staff informed him that the prime minister was in the bath. You know, he can't talk right now. He's he's having a good scrub, and Mountbatten was like, "Good, perfect. Take me to him." (laughs) So, (laughs) Mountbatten uh, charged into the bathroom, and then from here, I'm going to read from Collins's version of the account. Quote. I have, Mountbatten explained, a block of new material that I would like to put in your bath. (laughs) Mountbatten opened his parcel and dropped its contents between the prime minister's bare legs in the water. It was a chunk of ice. Rather than bellow at his chief of combined operations, Churchill stared at the ice intently, and so, standing by the bathtub, did Mountbatten himself. Minutes passed, and they still looked into the steaming depths of bathwater before them. The ice was not melting.
0: This is such a great moment in, in, in global history right here. Um, <laughs> I mean, it all, it almost, and, and certainly it has to be up there for like great, m- great nude moments Oh yeah, in, uh, in world history, you uh, know, just dealing with say like the, the non saucy moments in world history that matter that also combined, uh, involve nudity. Like this has to be at naked Churchill in his
2: bath, uh, beholding this, uh, this, this floating block of wonder ice. Well, I'm not sure he was naked. Maybe Churchill bathed in a tuxedo with tails and a top hat. You never know. Well, maybe, but then we're just in weirder territory. <laughs> But so, yeah, here here we have Pycrete. And I should say that I, I'm a little confused about the timeline here because some sources I was looking at report that the Pycrete thing came in like early 1943, but Collins puts this story in late 1942. So there might be some questions about the timeline here. And, and, and so I, I do wonder about the veracity of this story, but I, I have no reason to, to believe that it's fabricated and I want to believe it's true.
0: Well, I don't want to dispel this mental image, so we're going to take a quick break. Keep this in your head. And then after a word from our sponsors, we will return and bust open the
2: PyCrete. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, All right, we're back. So here we are at the birth of PyCrete, the potential solution to the iceberg aircraft carrier problem. That's right. They realized that this was an avenue
0: forward. This was a way we might be able to strengthen the ice so that we could do all the amazing things that we want to do with it. So they experimented. Different pulp ice combinations were tried. You know, they, they had different pulps, wood pulp, uh, rocks, other materials put in there. But they ultimately found that all you needed was as little as 4% pulp. And you would experience a huge upgrade in durability compared to regular ice. Basically, these embedded materials prevented cracks in the ice from advancing. So, I mean, basically, you could think of it as, um, um, you know, a crack starts. And instead of being able to eventually uh, vein its way through an entire block and bring it to pieces, it could only go so far um, before it
2: encountered something to stop it. So if you were going to make a wall out of ice, Pycrete would be a better candidate than regular ice.
0: Yes. Yeah. As Thompson points out, it, it's not that it would make it, I mean, it makes it more durable. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't mean that it would be invincible. It would still fail, but it would fail in a much more predictable fashion. And and that's also why Thompson ultimately points out that if your brand, the builder, uh, brand in the builder, the, the legendary brand, mm-hmm. if you're looking to build a giant wall of ice, even with the help of some uh, magical beings, uh, doing something like piecrete would be your best option for building that wall.
2: Yeah. So I was reading Perutz's reports about these experiments with piecrete, about like the optimal type of wood pulp to use, the optimal amount of wood pulp and suspension of water to use. So it looks like they usually ended up using spruce or pine wood pulp that's ground up by machines. And this is the pulp that ultimately would become the pages of a newspaper in another context. Uh, and in when in liquid form, this this mixture has interesting properties. Like a five percent suspension is sort of uh, porridge-like. It's kind of like oatmeal, but a ten to fifteen percent suspension is more like a sponge. And when you freeze it, you yeah you get this resulting matrix of water ice and saturated wood fiber that becomes extremely tough. You can bash it, shoot it. It tends to hold together very well. There's a famous story of Lord Mountbatten taking out his pistol at a meeting of allied commanders to shoot a block of ice. Of course, when he shoots the block of ice, it shatters all over the place and then shoot a block of piecrete to demonstrate the difference. And apparently when he shot the pycrete, the bullet ricocheted and grazed the pant leg of an American admiral in the room. Oh, my goodness. There are also reports that the people outside heard the shooting. They had not been warned. And they were like, who's shooting in there? Is there an assassination going on? But no, it's just just dashing Lord Mountbatten. And with his pistol shooting at materials to to make a point. Wow, this is just uh, this is so weird,
0: and it's uh, again I don't think this has ever been in in a, in a film. Uh, I had a I had a Russian history a professor once who. Uh, who was fond of pointing out that you know you'll see some movies about, um, for instance, the Eastern Front uh, during World War II, mm-hmm. but you're always going to see the same stories, the same particular stories told time and time again. When in, when there are so many additional, uh, e- you know, it's equally interesting and in many times strange stories that are spread out across that entire theater of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and and likewise, when you look at like all the things that are going on during this period, you have you have stuff like this that just for. Some reason uh, has a way of falling through the cracks.
2: Yeah, totally, and and it still keeps getting weirder. So another thing about this project is that it had to be very secretive. I mean, this is this is top secret military research at the time. So you had people making just big troughs and buckets of wood pulp mixed with water, and this is like the same level of secrecy where the as where people are trying to create a death ray or something. Uh, they yeah. apparently they they took out refrigerated rooms under a London. Meat market, I think it was Smithfield's market. They converted this into this top secret experimentation and manufacturing space for Pycrete. And uh, Perut says that a lot of the people working on Pycrete research had no idea what this was going to be used for. Like they were kept in the dark in order to maintain, you know, OPSEC. But a few of the things they determined in their research, one was that an ideal amount of wood pulp to make piecrete is about 14 percent. So, you know, like 86 percent water, 14 percent wood pulp. Uh, They also found that temperature can matter a lot. This material, a lot of the good things about it become less reliable as it warms up. And so Mm -hmm. in order for it to have its optimal features, it really needs to be kept at about negative 15 degrees Celsius. But if you keep it cold, it is much stronger than regular ice. It behaves much more predictably than regular water ice. Perut says that it gave results which were reproducible to within about uh, 25%, plus or minus 25%. And the wood pulp actually decreased the brittleness of ice so much that Perut says that pycrete was ductile and could even be machined on a lathe. So ductile means that it can wow. be stretched out into a wire. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's definitely showing you a material that is tough and not brittle.
0: So we said we'd come back around to uh, just how torpedo-proof uh, Pycrete would be. Uh, in in researching this, they found that a torpedo would, upon impact, dig in about 60 centimeters, and then it would um, it would crater out a 4.5-meter area uh, in the Pycrete. So they figured, okay, we would need to have a 9-meter-thick hole. That would do the work. Um, and then, of course, also to accommodate the aircraft, as I think we already mentioned, it would need to be like 600 meters long and 60
2: meters wide. So huge again. Yeah.
0: Enormous. So basically, this is this is the sort of durability that would prevent a U-boat from being able to like sneak in, pop off a torpedo and just bring the whole thing down.
2: Right. It was it was supposed to be sort of like a floating fortress or a floating island. It would just yeah. be for practical purposes invulnerable. Yes. But that doesn't mean it was without problems. So, like, one of the things that they observed while they were testing the material properties of Pycrete was that Pycrete is, like other ice, subject to something we mentioned earlier – Creep. Ah, uh, yes. Creep is, again, the slow deformation of materials under pressure over time, the slow flow. So if you put a heavy load on a slab of pycrete, it's not nearly as susceptible to cracking and rupture as regular ice is. But if you just leave that load there, the slab will probably sag over time, which is not something you want to happen if you're going to be parking aircraft on it and stuff like that. So research revealed times and periods of creep were different for different substances, uh, depending on, you know, the kind of wood pulp, different percent suspensions and all that. Uh, But the temperature constraint was, again, very important. They they determined that negative 15 degrees Celsius was like the highest permissible working temperature. If it gets warmer than that, this boat is going to be in trouble. OK, so eventually in 1943, the naval engineers decided, yes, Pykrete is strong enough. We can make this. We can do it. So get to work constructing our Berg ship. Uh, Perutz reports that they, they wanted to have a working prototype that would be ready within the next winter season. And then soon after that, a fleet of them which would be ready for a possible invasion of Japan. And uh, Perutz notes that to many en- engineers, this seemed impossible, but then he puts it Within the context of the the whole sort of like war orientation and Perutz writes, quote, in retrospect, this may seem the obvious verdict, but it must be remembered that the ship plan was only one of several apparently impossible engineering feats conceived during – During the war, e.g. the atomic bomb, and that the question was not so much one of absolute feasibility, but rather of whether the ultimate strategic advantages to be gained by the Berg ships were in proportion to the expenditure of manpower and materials involved in their construction. In fact, I think that had not the course of the war and the state of our armaments changed, the Bergship could have been constructed. So that's Hmm. Perutz's opinion. He thinks, you know, if if things hadn't changed and made it not so rewarding, we could have done it. Yeah. Just a couple more physical details about the proposal that I thought were very interesting. One is that this hypothetical giant bird ship would have had a waterproof skin on the outside to help insulate the piecrete, but then also the material would have to be cooled with artificial refrigeration, right? Because they've got to keep it at negative 15 degrees Celsius or colder. So they would have an air conditioning system on the aircraft carrier made of piecrete to refrigerate the piecrete, and it would be blowing (laughs) compressed air on it to keep it cold. But the downside is, if you think about that, oh, man, if the air conditioning system breaks, then your ship could start melting and lose structural integrity. Though another good thing about Pike Reed, as we mentioned earlier, is that it melts more slowly than regular ice. So you'd still have a bigger window of time than you would on a regular iceberg.
0: I can't help but be reminded of the old, there was an old Disney cartoon with um, like Donald Duck and the nephews battling each other, in a, like an epic snowball fight. Do you remember this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Donald Duck, I believe, builds like a warship out of ice. And it is, he's, you know, devastating his nephews until they, um, they like, they have like a flaming bow and arrow, uh, which seems a little violent in retro- respect but they fire that into his ice ship and then melt it and it like melts into the shape of like a duck skull
2: brutal yeah it's it's (laughs) weird stuff okay but a couple more questions about this aircraft carrier like if you're going to take this idea seriously and try to actually build it First of all, where do you freeze it? (laughs) Mm. Uh, You know, remember that Winston Churchill wanted to let nature do the job. That was his quote. That was the the cheap boss idea. But it quickly became apparent that this was just not really feasible. There was just nowhere they could find on Earth where you could could feasibly let natural cold freeze this thing in place. It just wasn't going to work. So instead, they turned to some artificial uh, construction ideas that would be based in Canada. Perutz writes, quote, the locality eventually selected for building the prototype was Corner Brook in Newfoundland, where ah. uh, I said it right this time. I, you you I, did. Yeah. And uh, and I but it,
0: I was more reacting to the fact that I've been to Corner Brook. I, I barely remember it, but I was, I was a child at the time. But yeah, I've been to Corner Brook. Oh, what's it like? Uh, like I said, I barely remember Oh, OK. It. <laughs> I think I, I think I got to get a toy at um a gas station or something there. Like that's, of course, the only thing I remember because I was a child. But I remember the
2: name. Well, it sounds lovely, and it sounds cold because Perut said the uh, the average daily temperature was negative five degrees Celsius. I guess this would be in the winter time, uh, but it could be expected for a hundred days straight. And there you would have protected waters of sufficient depth in order to try to build one of these things. Now, Perutz also says, eh, you know, even though it wasn't made of steel and didn't require steel like uh, like a regular warship would, it is still a huge material investment. One ship alone would require one point seven million tons of pycrete material Wow, Where can you make that much? Uh, Perutz argues that this alone would have required a refrigerated plant of something like a hundred acres or forty hectares, and this would take away from other industrial needs of the Allied war effort. Yeah, you can't build that out of ice. You're going to have to build that out of uh, out of metal and wood, right? Yes, and so these difficulties we've been talking about, along with other changing circumstances, ultimately caused the Allies to abandon the plan for berg ships in 1944. Uh, and the other circumstances were a range of things. One was that. There was uh that airplanes themselves started to get increasing flight range, yeah, yeah just our
0: aviation technology in- increased enough to where suddenly those um, uh, th- those distances weren 't uh, insurmountable anymore,
2: yeah, and uh, Perutz actually says that. Uh, it's I guess the, a lot of these changes started around 1942, the same time this project started. But eventually, you could get land-based airplanes out far enough over the ocean to provide sufficient air cover, even even if they had to launch from from bases on land. And other things were uh, the acquiring of additional bases on land. So, like uh, a couple of sources mention, the fact that Portugal granted the Allies use of the Azores in the Atlantic, and this helped uh, helped them. Re- reach farther out into the ocean. So there's that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, Some changes in airplanes also meant that you needed even more runway space than you had before. So it would mean that you could build this 600 meter long floating runway, make this huge investment to build this thing. And then a lot of the new planes that you want to launch can't even get off of it because now that's not long enough for them. They've just got to be launched from the ground still. So as you're accommodating what kind of platform you can get out into the middle of the ocean, the planes are requiring more and more platform all the time. Time. Finally, Perutz also notes that uh, "quote the island hopping campaign of the American forces in the Pacific had been successful beyond expectation and had made an eventual invasion of Japan appear feasible without large floating air bases.
0: So just in general, in this short amount of time, the world had moved on and was leaving the idea of uh, the bird ship behind it.
2: Right. So we never got to find out if this idea could really be achieved because it just it just sort of became obsolete as the war progressed. Uh, but it, there's an interesting note that, that Perutz uh, makes uh, about this project as a contribution to ice science in general. He writes, quote, nevertheless, the volume of first rate data produced within a period of six months in this country and in Canada, under the pressure of war, far exceeded the total volume of reliable work that had been done before on the mechanical properties of ice itself.
0: So war, what is it good for? Um, well, I, I still think the song is correct. Absolutely nothing. But I guess you could make an argument for um, the advancement of, um, of our understanding of ice.
2: Well, it makes you wonder, Like, what if we just put the amount of priorities on regular scientific research that we put that we put on that research when it's necessary to win a war.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember Neil deGrasse Tyson making this point about, um, uh, about space exploration. Uh he was uh, I forget which book this was, but he was basically saying, "Hey, you know, if we really want to get serious about about space exploration, we need to fake the existence of uh, of an extraterrestrial enemy because that if we can get the <laughs> war machine behind it, if that will if, if we can get that kind of political and public capital uh supporting it, you know, then we could do all sorts
2: of things." Um unfortunately, I in a way I kind of agree. I guess this is the Ozymandias theory from Watchmen, right? But yeah. um But I think part of the problem is a lot of what you would end up researching was the creation of newer, more powerful weapons, which are maybe not exactly what we need.
0: Right. I I, I think we've discussed this before in terms of... um of uh, of rocket science under the third reich you know th- there's there's often this um, sort of fantastic misconception that there is uh you know there's these great advancements in space technology and there's oh was a secret moon uh base uh, that the nazis had that sort of thing the, the nazi space program but and really you do and of course you did have a lot of of uh of brilliant minds uh, working at the time but like so many other brilliant minds during this global uh war they were sucked into that black hole of uh of Global conflict, so their value to uh, these nations that they were um, they were serving were were just boiled down to warfare interests. Like, oh, you're good at rocketry. Well, can you make a rocket uh, bring death to this country? Oh, you you know about how ice works. Well, that's great because we're trying to build a massive weapon out of it. That sort of
2: thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, you know, we don't want to downplay that. Like in in Germany, there were actually advances made in rocketry that were later put to peaceful uses. But the uses they were put to primarily during the war were to rain hell down on England and other allies. But so anyway, that's the end of the the historical Pycrete story, you know, that that, uh, the project came to an end and there has not been a lot of serious... Investigation of PyCrete, uh, at, certainly not at that scale. Since then, people have done little projects where uh, people have built structures out of PyCrete and stuff, and, and that's interesting. And in fact, there have even been like uh, like MythBusters and some other TV shows, kind of like this. I think there's one in in Britain called uh, Bang Goes the Theory that have tested out small boats made of PyCrete. I know on the MythBusters episode. They, uh, they tested the mechanical properties of Pycrete, like trying to drop it from certain heights and smash it, and they confirmed – the kind of stuff that Perutz had already been saying, that like a a frozen block of water saturated wood pulp did indeed melt a lot more slowly than an equivalent-sized block of water ice. It was also a lot more structurally sound. When when dropped from a height of about six feet, a frozen block of water would, you know, shatter into a million pieces just like you would expect. But a block of frozen piecrete would break maybe in half, maybe lose a piece here and there, but it was not nearly as brittle as the water ice alone. And then uh, in the Mythbusters investigation, they actually make something they end up calling super picrete, which is instead of using wood pulp in its uh, you know very small, shaved up form, they use whole sheets of newspaper frozen within the ice. And the mm. sheet newspaper piecrete was super strong. It was extremely resistant to shattering. Oh, man.
0: If you use a newspaper that has really strong journalistic integrity in there... <laughs>
2: It's going to hold up even more. One other, just sort of popular media thing I came across was that there is a YouTube channel called the Hydraulic Press Channel. Have you ever watched this? No, but I'm assuming it's it's like the old David Letterman bit, right? Where the uh, where he would put
0: take different things and put it in a, a hydraulic press. Oh, okay. It's exactly that. It's just some oh, people. Okay, excellent.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that was a David Letterman thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. This is like the old David Letterman show. They would do that. Yeah. Uh, that's great television. And and I got to admit, you know, I start when. Of these videos up i'm probably going to watch it to the end i just i want to see what it looks like uh, so yeah they- and you know why again it's james cameron's fault uh-huh. because of
0: terminator one yes
2: because as children
0: we watched that scene where the the, the t-800 is mm. crushed in the hydraulic press and it made an impact on it it burned into our psyche and uh, there's just something about a hydraulic press we can't look away
2: Yeah. So the hydraulic press channel, they tested out some piecrete, regular sawdust piecrete, and they found, of course, it does not shatter the way you would expect ice to shatter. Instead, I would say that it seems to under extreme pressure, it seems to first kind of melt around the edges And then crumble ultimately, I mean, under much more pressure than it takes to crush a similar amount of ice, it ultimately kind of crumbles in a sticky looking way, kind of like a crumbly block of feta cheese. Can you picture this? Mm -hmm. Yes, I can picture something that looks like a cross between crumbly feta cheese and maybe like orange juice concentrate. And so it's just kind of peeling off in pieces like that. Uh, They also they also try some uh, newspaper mush piecrete. Uh, This this does also kind of a melt and a sticky crumble. The pieces are softer, less frozen. And then they end up using what looks to me like toilet paper. I'm not sure they they call it sheet paper. Uh, But this one's Got a really interesting texture. It's worth looking up. It kind of flakes when crushed. Uh, and the, the, the flakes are still, they demonstrate very large and strong. So it, it looks like something that would be soft and melt in your hand, like a piece of butter or cheese. But then when you pick it up, it's like solid. You can bang it against stuff. Anyway, very interesting material and something that I think you can quite easily make or make a version of at home. That's right. I mean, ultimately, people
0: can make their own piecrete at home after listening to this show and then tell us about how
2: it went. There was a thing in that uh, Cabinet Magazine article by Paul Collins where he quotes uh, a professor, a professor named Erlen Schulson, director of the Ice Research Laboratory at Dartmouth College. And Shulson uh, is trying to answer the question of why modern people don't make better use of pie creed in light of its benefits. And he just says, I don't really know why it has languished in obscurity. Hmm. Uh, it seems like something that could actually be useful for a lot of things. But for some reason, nobody's not nobody. I mean, people have done things here and there, but it does not seem like it has been taken up in uh, in a large way.
0: So that's the the past and the present. Uh, we might well wonder about the future of ice-based uh, building. And uh, I was looking around a little on this, and uh, I ran across um, the uses of Martian ice, uh, a paper by Charles S. Uh, Cockle, published in the Interdisciplinary Science Reviews. This was back in uh, 2004. Cockle uh, writes, quote, Martian polar ices could be used as a shield by human explorers. By covering a research station with ice, high energy solar particles could be absorbed, uh, protecting explorers from potentially damaging radiation exposure. Finally, Martian ices provide a substratum over which scientific and exploratory expeditions could traverse on their way to deep field sites and the geographic poles themselves. Martian polar ices have the potential to open a new and unique Chapter in the long relationship between humans and ice. Hmm. So that's a neat neat idea, like the idea of building structures out of ice. And uh, it sounds like like highways of ice on the red planet.
2: Sure. Uh, And I think this has been proposed by other people in the past. Uh, I can't remember where, but I know I've encountered the idea of using ice or even a mixed up matrix of of Mm -hmm. ice and and other fibers, kind of like pycrete, to build structures potentially on uh, on like asteroid surfaces. Yeah, so there may be some potential for, for PyCrete there.
0: Um, I, was, I was looking around for some more takes on this, and uh, I came across a, an interesting concept, the Mars Ice House Project, which is a concept that won at the 2015 New York Makers Fair. They have a really sleek website at uh, marsicehouse.com, uh, but this is a concept from... Um, from search that's uh, the space exploration space exploration architecture and clouds AO that's clouds architecture office uh, and it basically is, the idea is to is to have robotic machines 3d printing buildings and structures out of ice on the Martian surface and they claim that quote in consultation with our team's experts scientific advisors astrophysicists geologists structural engineers and renowned 3d printing experts we have achieved positive experimentation with one to one ice printing and successfully analyzed structural models now obviously there are a lot of caveats uh, here uh, related both to the properties of ice and the particular challenges of the martian environment but i think it's really uh, a really a thought-provoking concept you know imagine ghost cities made out of ice built on mars by uh, autonomous laborers
2: yeah robots build structures that nobody's in yet i like it yeah yeah, just like
0: weird, uh, like geometric, egg-loose uh, cities uh, on Mars. And uh, yeah, it, and uh, I don't know that they really get into the Pie Creek concept as much, but it makes sense uh, that that could be a part of it as well.
2: I think part of the secret to this is don't let Cohagen buy up that city. He he can't get in <laughs> early because he's not going to give the people to air.
0: <laughs> That's true. He's he, he is stingy with the air. But the ice, up for grabs, I guess. All right, so there you have it. Pycrete, ice, walls of ice. Uh, hope you enjoyed this journey. It was a fun one to go on with you. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Do you have thoughts on uh, on ice itself, on Pycrete? Have you ever made Pycrete? Uh, do you just have any uh, feedback on the various... Um, contemplations regarding uh, like 80s and 90s cinema that we uh, touched on, uh, you know how to get in touch with us. Joe will provide the details here in a second. Um, as always, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us, wherever you get your podcast, There are a million places to get us out there. Uh, all we ask in return is that if you have the ability to rate, review, and subscribe do that because that helps us out
2: huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind
1: Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.